millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I bring you a message today from the people of Ireland. The Irish desire peace with England as with the rest of the world. It is a question of our republic. And we want the creation of a new Ireland. I wish to talk to you this evening about the state of the nation's affairs. I wish to talk to you this evening about the state of the nation's affairs. Welcome to the History of Ireland. Today I'm sharing another interview with you rather than a regular episode. This is the first half of a really interesting interview with Alexander Poots, the writer of The Stranger's House, writing Northern Ireland. In it, we dive into what we can learn from Northern Irish writers about the area and the history, focusing mainly on two very different writers from very different backgrounds, C.S. Lewis and Seamus Heaney. It's a really interesting chat, and of course you can get the full thing on Patreon. Enjoy. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Such a pleasure, Kevin. Thank you for having me. So I guess just to jump right in there, The Stranger's House. What an interesting and provocative title. I'd love for you to explain where you got that and how you think it relates to Northern Ireland. And even the subline, writing Northern Ireland. Interesting choice of words. And I'd love to hear a little bit about that. Yeah, well... As I was writing the book, I had two titles in mind. One was The Stranger's House. The other was Disappearing Island. And both of those titles come from poems that I discuss in the introduction anyway. I discuss both of them. One is a poem by Tom Paulin, who's from a kind of a unionist background, but is, you know, now I would say probably broadly speaking, a proponent of a united Ireland. He wrote a poem called An Ulster Unionist Walks the Streets of London. The second option was a poem by Seamus Heaney called Disappearing Island, The Disappearing Island, from his collection, The Hall Lantern. And I talk about them both in the introduction. I plumped for Paulins because I feel that it encapsulates so much of what I talk about in the book, the themes that emerged as I was researching and writing it. In brief, it's, it's about an Ulster Unionist who visits London and I suppose expects to feel home there. Because after all, today at least, unionism is associated with ideas of Britishness. That wasn't always the case with unionism necessarily, but it is It is today, certainly since partition, more and more so. And this Ulster Unionist, who's never named, goes to London and is shocked to find himself walking through a foreign city and has a very strange moment of realisation that the locus of his ideas of home and belonging actually isn't where he thought it was. And there's a, there's a great moment in the poem where he's walking through Camden and Kilburn, which 
you know, it's less so now, but back in the day, of course, were quintessentially Irish areas of London, big diaspora areas. And it's shocked to discover that these Irish people who are, of course, from the South initially, um, seem much more at home in London than he does. He then goes to a sort of a fugue state and ends up at a place called the Stranger's House, which Paulin leaves pretty unresolved as to what that is. In the book, I, I argue that it's probably at least in seed based on a Victorian institution in Limehouse in London, which was called the Stranger's mm. Home, which was a place where much of the British Navy throughout its history was composed of people that weren't English or British people who initially hailed from, for example, the Far East, they might find themselves at the end of their careers sort of stuck in London, basically. Mm. And so they would stay at the stranger's home before catching passage home, hopefully. It's quite a powerful image for an Ulster Unionist who's meant to be in the capital city of his own country, the United Kingdom, to end up actually in this sort of boarding house for people waiting to return to their to their real mm. home. That's the reason I went for The Stranger's House. There's also, I mean, it is extraordinary how often the image of the house recurs, and it does recur consistently throughout the poets I discuss in the book, because I do think that, after all, so much of what has happened in Northern Ireland is an argument about whose home it is, who has the right to call it home. And the irony about about that argument really is that this place has resulted, you know, potentially in being no one's home at all, because it's, you know, for so much of its history, it was ultimately a site of violence and and trauma. Mm. And so just to to jump in there and poke at that, and I guess ask the question that maybe some of my listeners might be going, Mm. is I'm interested in history. I'm interested in Northern Irish history. Why should I be interested in these poets, this 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 book of, of writing about the poets? Yeah. So what does it tell us a, about Northern Irish history? Yeah, I mean it's an interesting question because if you're reading newspaper articles, they depending on the publication, they might try and be objective, but they inevitably lose something there. So you can get the bare facts if you're lucky, but you're never really going to get a sense of the human cost of Mm. what happened here now that's something you absolutely do get with the best poems from this period and also with a long career like Seamus Heaney's you can actually really track his his own different responses to what was to what was going on for quite a pacific individual actually I mean he was someone who was certainly not engagé and was was criticized by many people from his own community, I suppose, for, especially once he started to achieve a certain degree of fame, for perhaps not advancing the nationalist cause and the way that Mm. they felt he ought to be doing. But even he sometimes, so for example, a poem was unearthed pretty recently about which was written in in memory of the, the people murdered on Bloody Sunday, for example, which wasn't, in some respects, a very heeny thing to write about, arguably. He he tended to prefer allegory and illusion and maintain a certain distance there. But even someone like Heaney engaging with Bloody Sunday, you know, is, is a sort of a remarkable coming together of, of culture and and the political horrors that were 
unfolding. So I think it's always worthwhile. And it gives you a sense of that kind of human scale, which good poetry does anyway. And I I think personally, for myself, it is really interesting to think about how that area really was was created that's what the the last episode in the podcast was all about the the border and how the border was drawn up yeah which and it was an administrative thing back in 1914 1916 thinking about that kind of the context of where the little show of ours is sitting you mentioned this idea of northern ireland both existing and not existing at the same time Mm. i think that's a it's a fascinating insight and how do you think it shaped the the writers yeah no i mean i could i could talk about this forever really because it's something i come back and forth on a lot but i i subtitled the book <clears throat> writing northern ireland which some of my friends down south took me to task over and said oh alex it should be writing the north of ireland or or whatever i do think whatever your political persuasions are in this case, Northern Ireland is valid because I'm talking about people largely in the book who were responding to a situation. And that situation came about because the Boundary Commission did what they did and the British government did what they did and Eamon de Valera didn't do what he didn't do. And we've ended up with a partitioned island. So you, the result of that is a succession of events which had to be responded to by serious poets and serious novelists because it's, it's all very well fanning around being a poet, but actually if you're not paying attention to the really important stuff going on around you, then there's probably not a lot of point in, in poetry. So I hope that sort of answers your, your question there. For sure. I think it's... it's- it is really interesting and it's it's fascinating to think about that that balance and that almost yeah northern ireland as an idea and something that these writers are reacting to is i think a really interesting lens to, with which to look at it through it so i wanted just the, the i've jumped in and out of the book and some of the poets i know some of the writers i didn't one of i i i think their reactions to northern ireland and everything is is really interesting to see how different people responded to the the situation and so again for the area i'm most interested in really kind of in the weeds with at the moment like that 1920s territory c.s lewis is a really interesting case study i think for a certain kind of person living in that world and a certain reaction to it i'd love to i'd love to hear yeah a little bit about your your thoughts on c.s lewis and his time growing up in that very early stage of northern ireland and how it affected him yeah, well, he's he's born. He's really interesting because, of course, Northern Ireland comes into being when he's a young man. So he's he's born in that sort of vanished country, which you know was was Ireland and yet not Ireland, and a scion of you know a kind of a bourgeois Protestant upper middle class, essentially living in Belfast, very much beneficiaries of the kind of mini industrial revolution that happens in north the northeast cs lewis's father was a was a lawyer who sort of worked for various you know big industrial clients i suppose so they had a they had a very nice life living in what's now a part of east belfast but actually back in the day was sort of a semi rural area overlooking the loch 
And it's a childhood which he later places most famously into, into the Narnia books. So when you mm. when you read these Narnia books and you have these incredibly almost cartoonishly English school children. That's what I was going to say. Like you mm. as a as a kid reading C.S. Lewis and reading Narnia, I actually I, I didn't know he was Irish. I would never have thought yeah. that he was. It's it's so very English. And do you think that was a so politically he as a that sort of upper middle class Protestant parents I imagine or his father imagine would have been quite unionist or do they sit aloof from it do you think he retreated from did he run away from it so lewis he does he talks about this and his brother as well talks about this in in his um journals from the time his dad was yeah uber unionist but of course the flavor would have been pretty different from unionism today this was sort of Church of Ireland unionism, right? Mm. So it's all quite sort of cosy and quite classy, I suppose. And, uh, you know, but but yeah, I mean, this Lewis's father would have grown up through the latter years of the, the home rule, the endless home rule debates. And um, for a man like Albert Lewis, C.S. Lewis's father, he very much, his entire life was sort of lived in the shadow of what happens to people like him when Ireland achieves independence. Because they were, you know, they they were aware that a new Ireland probably wasn't going to have a place for them. There are descriptions of life at the, the Lewis household where, particularly on Sunday evenings, Albert Lewis's friends would all come over and they'd all sit and smoke their pipes and they'd dissect that that sort of week's news from Westminster and uh, talk about what they were going to do should their entire way of life come to an end. But, you know, there's a sense that their their time is up maybe and they're sort of worrying about what to do about it and, and all the rest of it. So that was that was the context in which Lewis grew up. He then goes to Oxford and falls into a friendship with this this guy called Theobald Butler, who was Irish and but a very much a source of um, a a kind of pretty hardcore. I suppose these days we call him a, a Republican, mm-hmm. and uh, you know he'd he'd sort of introduced Lewis to the poetry of Plunkett and and people like yeah. that. So so there's this brief moment where. I suppose, like a lot of young men, Lewis is, is captured by the the sort of the utopian dream of the new Ireland and and everything that 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 promises. And then in later life, he sort of settles into a kind of a a grumpy post partition. He settles into a sort of a, a grumpy kind of despair, I suppose, as 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 did many other liberal unionists of his kind of milieu and generation, Louis McNeese being another one. Mm, you, see, you see that a lot where I think there was the more, inter- like you often the more radical Republicans are, were often from that sort of bourgeoisie Protestant mm. class, the things of like the, the likes of Casement and the, and, and, those types. Yeah, and well, I mean, going right back to Wolf Tone, I mean, exactly, that yeah. sort of very much that, that theme going on there. Whereas Wolf Tone stuck with it to the end, <laughs> Lewis, Lewis ultimately settled and, and into you, it. And do you think some of that was a reaction to sort of the Civil War, the, the you could almost see a, a, an idea that Ireland had the partition was both seen as kind of could have been seen as a failure for someone like C.S. Lewis um, and 
the Southern Ireland that did retreat into Catholicism, for want of a better way to look at it, another kind of failure for someone like C.S. Lewis? Did he did he ever write about that, or did he just plan it and move on? Do you have insight into him? In terms of what happens later on, um, all we really get, and I, I'm going to step my neck out here because I'm not so, I'm not aware of anything Lewis wrote in later mm. life which we would necessarily take to be a considered dissection of what was going on in Ireland post-partition. But he certainly wrote later in life about what he called the demonic character of popular political causes. And of course, he was he was also a theological writer. And I think quite a lot of that comes through. He he perhaps loses interest a little bit in the minutiae of, of politics because his, his focus is on his heavenly reward, shall we say, rather than, <laughs> rather than what's happening. But he, he certainly had very, very little patience for the kind of sectarian violence that was, you know, certainly not as total as it later would be. But I mean, during during the initial problems and outbreaks of violence immediately following partition in the North, I mean, there's this great little series of letters he exchanges with his father. Lewis, by this point, is in Oxford, and his father remains in Belfast. And he sort of writes to his father saying, I do hope you remember to wear your shrapnel helmet on the tram. <laughs> you know? wow. So there's the source of the sense that things were not going well. And also he he talks, I talk about this in the book, something I found rather funny was um, all of his friends, his English friends at Oxford sort of regarded him as hard as nails because he, and, and fascinating precisely because he was from Belfast, which they associated with you know, kind of violence and, and chaos, even even back then. But what's really funny about that is you've got to remember his contemporaries would have all served in the trenches in the First World mm. War. So these are people that have potentially been through stuff like the Somme and Passchendaele, and they're still sort of going like, oh my God, you're from Belfast? And I think it's interesting too, you see in in C.S. C.S. Lewis's time and his father's time, and maybe this is just my lens, I always like putting a class lens on things, that there was a huge class difference. Like mm. the likes of C.S. Lewis could escape to to England. He could escape the the difficulties that were going on at, at the mm-hmm. time. A lot of unionists couldn't. They didn't have that opportunity. And I think there's a there's something to be said for that. It's it's very easy to not be worried about to be thinking about theology and not be worrying about the minutiae politics when you can run away to Oxford. And so to think about that and to, to sort of to go the opposite direction and someone I feel like who did think about the border quite a lot and came from a very mm. different background, I feel like we can't talk about Northern Ireland and the history around it and the writers reflecting that history without talking about the, the wolf in the room, the Beowulf in the room, mm. um, Seamus Heaney. Mm. And like I said, that's what we're focused on the podcast at the moment is this sort of the the creation of the the border and how these areas like towns just got cut in two and even Londonderry or Derry, whether it should have been in Northern Ireland and and or in the south of Ireland. And I, I'd love to get yeah, your your insight or what you think how that affected Seamus Heaney coming from those that nationalist sort of border community. Mm. Well Heaney was really, really good at not giving interviewers what they wanted, right? Mm. Whether it's a quick interview in the New Statesman or something, 
the question always comes up, you know, where where are you sitting? Because you're you're coming from a, a, a sort of a this community. I mean, he he himself said, you know, his his background would have perhaps been more in the language of of the late 20th century, his background perhaps would have been more SDLP than Sinn Fein. But he grows up in in rural Derry, and that's that's something that has an enormous impact on him. And and farm life, the natural world, that connection to a sort of a quintessentially Irish experience of the world, I suppose, is something that kind of fuels his poetry from the very off and and continues to do so right the way, right the way through to the end. But of course, as as a committed poet who begins publishing in the late 60s, so kind of just as everything's about to kick off, as a good poet who is paying attention to the world around him in minute detail, which I think is where all good poetry has to start. I stress all good poetry. You you can't not you can't ignore then what what starts to unfold around him. And I think initially there's a kind of a shock with his his generation of writers. And and as I was saying earlier, there's this sort of big problem that they have to deal with. Um, how do you how do you write about this stuff? How do you deal with it? A collection of his I really, really like is The Whore Lantern. And I talk about two poems from that in the book. One is Disappearing Island, and the other is his poem Wolf Tone. And in both of these, you kind of see a despairing attitude, I suppose, to the kind of hardline approaches that he was seeing all around him, both both Mm. from Republicans and from loyalists. And of course, then you have the British and Irish states in the mix as well. So it's at least a four-way tug of war. And that, and even that is kind of simplifying things because you had the idea that there was a unified Republican movement or a unified loyalist movement, I, I think, is for the birds, really. I mean, it's mm-hmm. changed all the time. So the disappearing island from Seamus Heaney, I think, is a really interesting example of where he'd got to by the 80s. So you have that initial terrible decade, the 1970s, which sort of arguably was was the worst one to, to live through. And I think, like many writers, he spent most of the 70s trying to work out how you talk about the stuff or how you write mm. about it. And more than that as well, of course, he wasn't just a poet. He was also a man who was trying to figure out what Ireland meant in, in in this particular context. I think like most intelligent people, he was perhaps looking around and wondering whether any of this stuff was was worth all the all the dead bodies. Now I'll leave that there. But if you're interested, you can get the full interview with Alex, where we explore Seamus Heaney's thinking even further and discuss some new modern Northern Irish writers and what they can tell us about the history of the region in a little bit more detail. It's all up on Patreon. Thanks for listening. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're enjoying it, give us a review on Apple Podcasts or tell your friends. It really helps. If you want to go further, you can support the show, get ad-free listening and bonus content on our Patreon page. Simply follow the Patreon link in the show notes or visit our website, thehistoryofireland.com. You can also get in touch through the website or on Facebook and Twitter. It's always great hearing from you guys. And if I've made a mistake, please do let me know. The History of Ireland was written and produced by me, Kevin Dolan. 
with music by Liam Doyle and additional help from assistant producer Aoife Murphy. This podcast was recorded in the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty was never ceded. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.